Well, if you'll stand with me this morning as we return to Romans and read with me the word of the Lord for us this morning, Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through 14. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to see that we have a debt of love. And Lord, that we do that, that we live that debt out because we see the day approaching. We see that you're coming soon. And Lord, that we do not do this in our own strength, but we do it in Christ. Lord, I pray your spirit would be upon me this morning. I know as well as everyone here, Lord, that if you do not speak through me, this will just be an empty message. Lord, your spirit is needed. We thank you for being with us this morning. I pray, Lord, your presence would fill our hearts. Give us ears to hear and hearts to do your word this morning. We praise you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. And we trust, Lord, that you will guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to title this morning's message, Our Debt of Love. Our Debt of Love. We've been going through Romans, so it's... We've been here before, if you remember when we were in chapter 11, Paul tackled this issue of loving one another in the church, and then in the second message that we taught, we saw that we're to love the world. And interestingly, it seems weird, and I don't know if you remember this, when we went to chapter 13, it's like, well, why, why, Paul, are you talking about, in the midst of this conversation about love, the government? And I would say that Paul isn't done with love. He's actually throwing an institution of the world in to show that we show love to the world by obeying authority that God has placed over us. And then Paul gets back to love again here in verse 8. Right? We see here, owe nothing to anyone. What is Paul saying? Is he, he just 
like a big picture, I think he's directly referencing verse 6 and 7 where Paul has given the reason why he's charging the Christian believers to obey and put themselves in subjection to authority. And that was to pay their taxes. Because why? It is a witness to the world of rightful obedience to authority. And so Paul, I think, is looking at that, but he's saying generally, we should owe no outstanding debt to anyone. But that's not the point of this passage. That, that is just a negative, right? The point is actually what comes next. Except, except to love one another. That's important. Because O here is a command. Owe no man anything. Except, so the command doesn't end with owe no man anything. It actually continues to love one another. So the verb owe no man anything controls the verb to love. And if you're into English, to love is an infinitive. Right? If you understand those terms, maybe you're like me and struggle with those terms. <laughs> but the commanding verb is owe. We owe a debt of love to one another. It is not optional. That's what Paul is saying. And I would say, if we want to extend it, we could say we are called to love without end. There's not an end to love. It's not a check mark you check. Imagine if I put love as a check mark every day for my wife or my kids. I said, well, I love them today. I'm done. Right? I said I love you, so that means I love them. No, love is a continuing action. And I really like, John Murray said this of his commentary of this passage. He says of love, By its very nature, love is a duty, which when discharged, is never discharged, since it loves not truly, since he loves not truly, who loves for the purpose of ceasing from loving. That makes sense? If, if you're just loving someone because then I can stop loving them, is that loving? No. By loving, love is intensified, he continues. The more it is exercised, the less can it be satisfied. When we love someone, we can't stop loving someone because it's a duty when I promised to love Megan, I didn't say, well, in, except in these cases. No, I said, until death hearts us. My love for her doesn't cease. And so, if I do something because I love Megan, and then she says, well, why did you do this for me? And I said, well, because I was supposed to. I think I've used that analogy before, right? 
She wouldn't feel like that was a love. That's what you're just doing it because you've, you have to, not because you want to. So love is a choice. It is a desire-driven choice. You say, well, I can understand in marriage, maybe my love for my kids. I still remember when each of them were born. But my love for them has increased, not decreased, despite disciplinary issues. As they grow and I get to know my children, I love them more. Just as today I love my wife abundantly more than the day that she said I do, or the day that she told me she loved me the first time. Right? Because our love has grown. It's suffered problems. It's gone through difficulties, but it's only increased. But the thing is, the love of this world, our love for one another, our love for family, cannot compare to God's love. Right? He is the prime example of someone who has given all. Right? We all know John 3.16, For God so loved, or God loved in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son. His only begotten Son. He, he didn't spare anything. Or Galatians 2.20 says, Paul is talking about justification by faith. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. God the Father sent His Son. His Son willfully gave His life for love. Ephesians 2.4 But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Then it goes on to tell us about how He sent His Son to die. Or, what about Ephesians 5, verse 1? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The love of Christ was a fragrant aroma to God. And I, I think it's something we walk in love because Christ loved us. That's, that's what Paul, where Paul's getting this. We don't love because we're trying to earn our salvation. We love as a response to what Christ did on the cross for us. As a response to His love for us. Do we see this debt in our daily life? Is, is it something that we think about every day? Because if we don't, it's easy to hate someone. 
You say, well, I don't hate anyone. What question? Do you know anyone who's an unbeliever that you encounter daily? I know this. I'm putting myself on the spot here because if we love them, we would share the best news that we have with them. Because if they died tomorrow, if they died one moment after they encountered you, where would they be? Love requires truth. Our world rejects this, right? Just get on Facebook. Get on Twitter. Get on any social media website and you find out that people don't love truth. They love what makes them feel good. But the Bible does not teach this kind of love. God's love relies on truth. And our lives should rely on truth. If we want to love, we must seek to know the truth. Because there are people dying today without truth. And guess what? They're not going to make it. I think back, Friday was the 19-year anniversary of 9-11. It seems incredible that it was that long ago, honestly. I remember I was sitting in biology class when that happened. But can you imagine how different the lives of the nearly 2,000 people would have been Actually, almost 3,000, sorry. The nearly 3,000 people who died on 9-11, what their lives would have looked like the day before if they had known it was their last day on earth. How many of them would have got their life in order? How many of them would have considered for the first time in their lives what eternity held Some of them already had. And I believe we'll see some of those people in heaven. But how many didn't? We don't know what tomorrow holds. And as Christians, we show our love by sharing the good news. To prove this point, to make us see our debt of love, Paul talks about the law. He says, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Interestingly, this law is not capitalized. Why? Because translators believe that law here is talking about the law of Christ. Not the Old Testament law, even though he quotes, For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's interesting. Paul goes to the law. Why? Paul is saying the intent of the law is to bring about love. For one another, right? But Paul's not the only one. Maybe you're saying, well, Paul, I think, I think you've gone up the deep end here. 
I, we, we can just do whatever we want. It's all love, right? Just do what you want. No, I don't think so. Paul's actually following the example of Jesus. Matthew 22. A lawyer comes to him, a man who understands the law, and he's coming to test him. And he says, teacher, in verse 35, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Okay, he's putting Jesus on the spot. He's trying to get Jesus to say something so that he can discredit him. So that the Sadducees and Pharisees and all of God, Jesus' enemies can attack him. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. What is he saying? He's saying the entire Old Testament hangs on these two commands. Love of God with all of our hearts, which extends to love for others. Because if you look at the list here that Paul gives in verse 9, not commit adultery. Who does that hurt? That hurts the spouse of the one who's committing adultery on both sides. And it actually hurts each person. What about murder? Obviously, it hurts the person who's, who's murdered, but it doesn't just do that. It affects their families, their, their loved ones. They're friends. You should not steal. What? This, this affects the person that was stolen from. You shall not covet. You know, I saw that car out in the driveway, and man, that looked nice. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come take your Porsche or your Ferrari or covetousness. All these affect our relationship to others. It's hard to love someone if we're thinking about how to steal from them. It's hard to love someone if we're thinking about sleeping with someone else. It's hard to love someone if we're angry enough to murder. So when we love our neighbor as ourselves, it requires definitive action. Our debt of love is unending. It doesn't stop. It's not a check mark. Well, I love Joel today as a brother in Christ, so I'm done. I don't have to love him till next week. No. Our love for one another in the church, in the world, is a, a, a constant walk. And you're saying, maybe you're saying, maybe you're not. Well, okay, Paul. You're, you're saying this fulfills a law, but I'm not sure I understand how it's possible that loving our neighbor fulfills the whole law. 
How is that possible? Why? Well, we see that right here in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You see that? The second part, if you look at the Ten Commandments alone, the second half of the Ten Commandments deals completely with our relationships with others as a result of our relationship with God. And so it is seeking to do what is right to others, no matter what the cost. And so as Christians, the reason we love one another, we love our neighbor, not just in the church. Paul's already addressed that in chapter 11. But all men, we love them because... We're fulfilling the law of Christ to not do wrong to another. 1 John 4.11 says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. I think that's a beautiful picture, honestly, because this is so similar to what Paul is saying. Even the word ought to love one another. It's the same word that is translated O by here in Romans. We ought to. To love one another. We owe it to love one another. Why? Because God has loved us. It is not optional. And then he says, no one has seen any God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. Huh? What's he saying? John is telling us, look. You can't love one another unless God is in you. Just try. Try to go out and say, you know what, God, I don't need you. I don't need you to love. And just name the person that you don't you least love in the world. <laughs> I don't need you to love them. And just encounter them once, and if suddenly it's easy to realize. You can't do it. If God is not abiding in you, you cannot love your neighbor. Even the good ones. We have a really good one. Very kind, very thoughtful. But I can't properly love him without Christ in me. Is God's love being perfected in you? I pray so. But Paul doesn't leave us here. He gives us a reason to love. He, he says, we, you have an unending debt of love. Okay. That's verses 8 through 10. But then in verse 11... Paul tells us why it's so important, why it is imperative. Because our day of reckoning is coming. 
That's my second point. For those of you that understand auditing, the IRS, or just budgets, there's a day when the auditors are coming, they're going to check your books and make sure what you have receipts for lines up with what you reported. That's what a reckoning is. One day we will stand before the Lord and there will be a reckoning. D-Day is coming. H-Hour is around the corner. You know what D-Day means? D-Day. Day of days. That's what it means. H-Hour. Hour of hours. When Jesus comes back, that day will be the day of days, just as He is Lord of lords and King of kings. When that hour that He first appear comes, we will say, this is the hour of hours. Some of us may not see that hour until we've already passed in to the other side, but D-Day is coming. Are we preparing? That's what Paul is saying, right? We see this. Do this. What? Love your neighbor. Fulfill that debt. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. It made me think about the fact that when a day that we are expecting is coming, we we take notice to everything, right? Right? Oh, I, th- I thought about that. Oh, I need to prepare for that. And it, it made me think about what we call D-Day in World War II. The generals didn't just, oh, let's do D-Day and let's throw some soldiers out there and see what happens. No, they actually planned an operation to prepare the soldiers. And in this operation, it was called Operation Tiger, they sent these soldiers to a place called Slapton Sands in southwest Britain. It had big, long, wide beaches, almost identical to the beaches of Normandy. They put them in the boats just the same, but they forgot something. They forgot that there were U-boats, German U-boats, patrolling that area of Britain. So they actually lost men in their practice. So they, they actually lost nearly, I think it was just from U-boat attacks, over 600 people in their practice. But that wasn't the end. They had live fire and artillery barrages to prepare the men to experience the sounds and, and the issues of war. They were supposed to stop at a specific moment before the men got out of the troop carriers. Unfortunately, the timing was off. Their communication was bad. And another 400 American soldiers were killed by British fire in a practice for the real deal. They were preparing 
But the interesting thing is, yes, a thousand men died. That's actually more men than died on the beaches of, of the Utah section of Normandy. It was kept a secret for years because the military didn't want the American public to realize, or the British people to realize, that that had happened. That was a five weeks before. But it helped them realize something. One, they realized that the life preservers that they had for the, for the soldiers were faulty. And not only that, that the soldiers didn't know how to use them. So they fixed it. And then they realized that they needed to standardize the radio frequency of all the ships. Because if they had known that, they could have told all the ships, hey, stop. Don't, don't let your men out yet because the, firing, the live fire has not stopped yet. So they realized that their, their communication systems need to be standardized so that they could protect lives. Now D-Day came. What happened? It was an overwhelming victory for the Allied troops. Yes, lives were lost, but imagine how many lives had been lost if they had not prepared. If they had not looked, oh, D-Day's coming. That hour's coming. Christ is coming back. Are we preparing? Are we demonstrating the love of Christ that's been poured out in us to the world? To our neighbors in the world, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul here, he he uses some imagery. Awaken from sleep. You you should have already been awake. Wake up. So he's telling the Roman believers, he's telling us this morning, wake up because. The hour to awake is already here. It's already past. He says, verse 12, The night is almost gone. The day is near. It's time to get up. It's time to get ready. It made me think of Isaiah verse chapter 60. Verse 1 through 4 says, Arise, shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you the light has come what light maybe some more context for behold darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples see this imagery is very similar but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you nations will come to your light in kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes around about you and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms. Who is this light? What is this light? Jesus, arise, shine. Jesus has come. The glory of the Lord, Jesus Christ, has risen upon you. 
And though darkness is covering the earth and all the people, the Lord Jesus will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you. Can you imagine? That's what He has done. And just to prove that Jesus is who this is, why don't we take Paul's word for it? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 5. We've already quoted a section of this. Talking about imitating God in, in our love. But later on, this passage of Ephesians chapter 5 parallels so much with what Paul says here in Romans chapter 13. And he says in verse 11, Do not proceed, participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret and now today in public. I mean, just think of what's available to watch on television anymore. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. What light? Jesus Christ. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake! Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The Apostle Paul is quoting this verse. And he inserts Jesus Christ. Is He shining on you? Are you looking to His imminent return? Are you longing for heaven? I hope so. Because when we long for heaven, we love rightly. Awake. Arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. What did he say? Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. I think Paul could just take this verse and apply it to us today, right? We're seeing wickedness portrayed on TV screens. We're seeing wickedness in the streets. I mean, I actually read an article the other day that there was a petition to allow public nudity in the, in the parks of Milwaukee. Because actually you can walk the streets of Milwaukee nude. But you can't walk parks nude. And they wanted to be able to do that in parks too. I didn't know that. This was from a liberal paper, so I actually trust that they wouldn't be making it up. Because 
what advantage would there be in making that up? But the days are evil. What are they? The signs of the times. We're seeing a move in the United States away from God and towards unbiblical pagan religion. If you turn back to Romans chapter 12. So Paul has shown us that we have an unending debt and that our day of reckoning is coming and that is why we pay this debt daily, continually. But that's not enough. Our love requires action. Our love requires requires action. And we see that here in the second part of verse 12 to the end. He hints at it in verse 9 when he talks about the law. But he gets explicit here. Therefore, in light of the fact that the day is drawing near, that each hour is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, and put on the armor of light. He uses the imagery of clothing, right? Of battle gear, right? He says, but let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like he's saying, okay, take, take the coat off, Lay it aside. Don't, don't allow the deeds of darkness to keep you back. It's not worth it. The day is coming. And when you lay those aside, those negative things that, are, that God hates, it's not enough just to lay them aside. Because if you just lay them aside and do nothing... That's not enough. We must put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be unable to fulfill this command to love one another if Jesus is not the Lord of our lives. It is impossible to do without Christ. I think we saw that already Right? You see this list of sins in verse 13. It's interesting. Not much has changed, right? You read verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day. Okay. What happens at night? Carousing. Drunkenness. Sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Strife and jealousy. Those still happen today at night. I'll give you a prime example. Key West, Florida. Okay? Key West, Florida. There's one street in Florida that has a reputation. They call it a crawl. 
This street during the day is unassuming. Shops, restaurants, and of course the bars that are thriving at night. But you can walk safely with your children down those streets, generally speaking, during the day. But I would never, ever, ever, ever walk those streets at night. Because we made that mistake once. We didn't walk it. We were in a car trying to go home, but we had to go down that street. And what I saw was verse 13. Saw everything listed there happening. Not much has changed since the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. When do people get drunk? Is it typically during the day? No, it's at night. When do people party and have fun like that? They don't do it in the daytime unless it's a weekend. Right? It's it's at night. When do people typically fall into sexual sin? At night. And sensuality. At night. Why do you think these television companies that have channels in the hotels are are airing sexually charged movies and, and even pornography at night because they know that people won't do that in the day. This verse makes me think, well, how what questions should I ask myself during the day? Would I do this? If it were nighttime, then I probably shouldn't do it. Right? Or maybe you're at night and you're, you're thinking about what you want to do. Like if, if this was daytime and everyone knew this was going to happen, if this was on my Facebook page, would I do it? Or my Instagram or whatever you... Maybe you have none of those things. Great. That's a really good thing. <laughs> but um, if... If my grandmother knew about this, or my mother, or my grandparents, then I wouldn't do this. But we need to lay aside the things and the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. I think he's talking about Jesus Christ. I think these two verses are kind of a... a, A parallel. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light that is spoken of in Isaiah and then directly translated by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 as the light that will shine on you. What are you wearing? Are you wearing works? Is is that the garment that you're in today? Well, look at with me at Philippians chapter 3. Quickly. Paul here, he's, he's talking about how his life is. And he says in verse 3, he's arguing against circumcision as a means of entry into the kingdom of God. 
He's telling him, don't put confidence in the flesh. And then verse 4, he says, Although I, might, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Why? I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee. What? A person who understood the law completely in their time. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Man, he was zealous. If zealousy could save you, he had it. As to the righteous, which is in the law, the law of Moses, I I did every single outward thing. Blameless, he says. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. This word rubbish is the word for dung. All that list, those works that Paul had had, had the circumcision, the, the training, the zeal, all that was dung to him in comparison to knowing Christ. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. See, he, he's rejecting that. Derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. His works, your robe this morning. It's not enough. Paul says it's like dung in the comparison of knowing Christ. And not just knowing things about Jesus, it is knowing Him intimately. Jesus has a parable. I don't know if you remember. He sends out an invitation. The king to his son's wedding And he invites all the the wealthy and the the people of of note, and they reject his call. So the king invites the beggars, the poor, the hungry to come in. They all come in. And in Matthew 22, verse 11, it says, But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding, wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend... How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Why? Because there had been wedding clothes provided to all the guests. They they weren't wealthy. The king had provided them wedding clothes. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot. Throw him 
into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is that robe? It's the righteousness of Christ. Has your robe been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Because in Revelation, that is the picture. Our robes must be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Is He everything to you and I? Jesus is the only way. If anyone tells you that Jesus is just a good teacher, they don't believe that He is the Son of God, they're going to miss it because either Jesus was a lunatic or He was the Son of God. There's no in-between. You want to walk in the love that Paul has described here in, in chapter 12 and in chapter 13. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 36 and we'll close. It says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Verse 25. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinance. When do we do anything in this verse? It's not until the last half of the last sentence. What it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of your flesh. I will put my spirit within you. You see that? Five times in this passage alone, God is doing the work. God is cleansing. He is purifying a people for Himself. And it is only when His Spirit is within us, when, the, when Christ has been taken on, that we can... Carefully observe His ordinances, His commands. It's not in who we are, it's in what Christ has done. When we are robed, when we have put on the Lord Jesus Christ and rejected the provision of the flesh. I want you to imagine... A poor beggar. He's on the street. He has his favorite raggedy clothes. Oh man, they're so nice. So comfortable. They're worn, but they're comfortable. I want you to imagine now, this man meets Christ in his 
Life is transforming. And Christ provides him with a whole closet of new clothing. Brand new. I mean, just the most comfortable, nice clothing. What if that man said, you know what? I want to stick this old one here just in case I need it. How ridiculous would that be? This raggedy old shirt and jeans. You know, I might need this someday. No. Put on Christ. There's no provision for the flesh. You want to fulfill your debt of love to these people in this room, to your neighbors, to the lost. Put on Jesus. Because without Jesus, you cannot do it. I cannot love without Jesus. I pray that we will, as a church, seek to daily fulfill this command. But not in our own flesh, but through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that You haven't left us alone. You continue to speak to us through Your Word. Lord, we live in a world that has redefined so many things, but not according to the truth of Your Word. I pray, Lord, we would continue to be people of the Word, people who will faithfully apply Your Word to our lives. Lord, guide us by Your Holy Spirit. Give us strength, Lord, through Your indwelling Spirit to love one another. Lord, we know You're coming back. Let us look with anticipation for that day. Lord, because we've prepared, we have faithfully sought to follow You. We've put on Christ. Help us as we lead our families, our schools, our business, whatever, Lord, You have us, whatever position and and place that we are in, Lord, help us to demonstrate the love of Christ to the world. Let it be an overflow of our intimate relationship with You. Or be with us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.